through 36. And God's word says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Please be seated. And let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time and ask his spirit to help us as we engage with this text. Lord, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your infallible word. We thank you that we can look at it and we can understand it with our intellects, but at the same time, your Holy Spirit works and helps us to discern these things. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence with us as we engage now with your text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was a few years ago, at least that's what I started to write when I was thinking about it, but it actually is more like a couple of decades ago when I first heard this phrase. I was reading a political journal, which will not be named, and they were commenting on a, one of our elected officials, which will also not be named, but they said that this individual wants to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. And I thought that was the most clever bit of writing I'd ever seen. It was an assessment that was true and good. And, and I thought this writer uh, needs a medal for just writing that one sentence. But then you hear that phrase again and again. It's a phrase that, that's into our culture. The people that just want to take the place of whoever or whatever should be the object of attention. And I thought about that studying today's text with John the Baptist talking about how he's not the bridegroom. 
He's not the one that needs the attention. That's Jesus, and it's for Jesus to have the unfocused attention. Uh, They came to John, and they said, look, Jesus is baptizing more people. What's going to happen to our ministry? And John said, the ministry is Jesus Christ, and he must increase, and I must decrease. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Uh, He essentially said, don't do that. Recognize your place on history's stage, which is our first point. Second, rejoice in your place on history's stage. And then for us this morning is receive Christ while you still have a place on history's stage. So that's the three points, and that's where we're headed this morning. Uh, First of all, recognize your place on history's stage. Jesus has caused quite a stir in Jerusalem. He's cleared out the money changers. He's done all of these miracles to the point that the um, uh, people were coming to him, and and, and based on the miracles, they wanted uh, to follow him. And the Bible, remember, said he he knew what was in their hearts, and they weren't really about him, but the, the miracles. And he said, I know what's in man. And then Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the religious order there in, in Jerusalem, Jesus even called him the teacher of Israel, comes to him by night and based on these miracles. So G- Jesus has made quite a splash. He came out of nowhere seemingly and he left. And now he's in the countryside with his disciples. And this might be a surprise if you haven't thought of it before, but it says Jesus is baptizing people. What's up with that? And very, very quickly, uh, we see in in 4, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2 of John, it says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So there were people being gathered, and Jesus' disciples were doing some baptism. Again, not the baptism as we know it in our Christian churches has been ordained, but that continuation of people being baptized saying there's something wrong and I need a cleansing. I need something wrong with me. And they were publicly, uh, publicly repenting. So that's what's going on in the background. The discussion between John's disciples and Jesus' disciples on a theological point and then it does what it normally does when pastors get together. Uh, I imagine uh, old friends caught up at our denomination's General Assembly last week, and they were talking and talking and politely, politely, but finally they couldn't help but ask each other, so how, how big is your congregation? What's going on in your church? What's, uh, we do that, and we think about those things when it devolves into, into that. And they started talking about numbers and thinking about numbers. Uh, they told us, and some good church planning advice. They said, don't focus on, and they said, nickels and noses. Nickels and noses are not uh, supposed to be the uh, focal point. You focus on, are you sharing the gospel? Are you open to receive people? And let the Lord take care of the Lord's business. And the Lord's business is the nickels and noses. Um, But here they are. And so John's disciples go running back to him. Master, teacher, rabbi, there's more people going to Jesus now than to you. 
And we do understand the spirit of competition. It's, it's part of us. And it wells up in us, even when it's wrong and a comparison. Uh, in our secular context, we just have that phrase, even keeping up with the Joneses. It's the same type of a thing. And so this is going on. The question that I would ask is if you look at verse 27, John answered, quote, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. To whom do you think that John was referring in that verse? To the ones being baptized, maybe? To their own calling and their salvation? I mean, we do understand that God is the author of of salvation and the finisher of salvation, but he's not talking about the personal discipleship and salvation. He's talking in the context of ministry, in the context of Jesus and the people coming to Jesus and the people that were coming to him. So he's talking about that. And I think that based on the rest of what John says about Jesus, he's referring to Jesus saying, God is sending these disciples to him even the disciples away from us to him. I also think that John is referring to his own ministry, saying the Lord is the one who brings the people to us, and the Lord is the one who diminishes our people for his good reason and his good purpose. We get this based on him saying in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. John knew and he recognized his place and his calling with his life on the world's stage. He knew what he was born to do. Remember back even, we talked about this when we went through Luke, uh, about when Elizabeth is pregnant with John, her cousin Mary is pregnant with Jesus, and even when the two unborn babies come into the room. Uh, Somehow, uh, the babe leaps in the womb of Elizabeth, and he knows his calling and what he's supposed to do. His cousin, Jesus, is the one that he is supposed to proclaim. We look at Scripture. We look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where God said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, which Jesus did. Suddenly, there he is in the temple, kicking those tables over and doing his thing. And the Lord suddenly comes to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. John recognized his place on the world stage. He recognized the role that he had to play. He had a calling. And he knew his calling. And I would say, rather than wait to the very end of the sermon, uh, when there will be applications to our life, here's one right now. And that is, you and me have a calling from God. It might not be as dramatic in that we were specifically foretold in Scripture as John the Baptist was, but it is just as real and just as much given to you by your holy God. You have a calling. There's a reason you are who you are. And if the world would get this, they'd stop trying to radically change who they are and be so discontent with who they are. 
You are who you are because God made you that way and wanted you that way. And if you're a Christian, he saved you with great things to do for him. Say, what kind of great things? Like as many people as John the Baptist? Well, if that's what he wants. But boy, what a great thing to be a grandpa or grandma and read books to your grandkids and tell them about the Lord. Uh, I was, I'll share it because he's not here, but, but uh, one of our elders, uh, Mark and Linda, are going to be spending, oh, I think eight days with three little kids, three little boys under the age of four. And they're like, man, we're kind of old for this on the one hand. On the other hand, Mark says, all those little children's books, those, those books I bought him, uh, uh, the Christian books, I get to read those to those boys, and I can't wait to get up there, and God give me strength to do that. What a mission field. What a calling. Maybe it's your coworker that you just silently pray for and silently pray for and silently pray for, and then sometime there's an opportunity uh, for the, the conversation to turn, and, and the Holy Spirit does something, and you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overcome what maybe a little fear I have, and I'm at least going to insert some God talk into the conversation. And then maybe that leads to more and more. You are who you are in the family you're in, in the job you're in, at the age you are, with the skill set that you have. Uh, because God's given you that place, this place, and the world stage where you live. And don't, don't shrink from that. Revel in that. God's able to keep track of us all. You have a role. Uh, listen to this. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, where Paul is writing and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and here's what I'm talking about, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Okay, that's a lot of words, but if you're able to, to look at that and think about that, essentially what Paul is saying is your calling, your personal specific calling, your being here and being adopted by God is because God wants you for that and he's given you a life to live that matters. We have that. You have a role. You're on the world's stage. Shakespeare's famous lines from whatever play, I just had to say them once in college, and so I kind of still remember them uh, in a speech class. But remember that those lines, all the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. Well, you know what? Shakespeare was a silver trumpet blowing God's truth uh, in whatever character he had say those lines in that play. And right now, uh, you have not exited stage left. And while you're here on stage, you've got some God's words to say. You still have lines uh, to give. And so you give them and you say them. Some actions to do. But realize that your job and Christ's job are different. Your job is not Christ's job. 
Your job is not to go to the cross and die for the sins of the people that you want to see come to Christ. Your job is to talk about the Jesus who went to the cross. Your job is to reflect Christ and tell people about Christ and the role he played in providing salvation for his people. So the first thing is just even recognizing your place on history's stage. But then he says, not just recognize in it, recognize it, but rejoice in it. That's verses 29 and 30. And to refresh our minds, here's what it says. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's like the friend of the bridegroom. He's happy his friend's getting married. He's happy his friend who he's seen all this. He's getting married, and it's great, and he's there to celebrate. He's not the bridegroom that's there to stick his face and photobomb every picture and draw attention to himself and say, hey, why are you looking at them? Look at me. He's the one who's happy for what's happening for his friend. That's what John the Baptist says Jesus is, the bridegroom. Best man is there to celebrate, to give a toast, to point to and to rejoice in what is happening for the bridegroom. We as a church don't want to draw people to ourselves. That's a mistake. We could grow pretty quickly, I bet. There's ways out there. There's whole books published on how to grow a church. Church growth this, church growth that. Um, Be careful on those things. Uh, I shared the man who uh, helped supervise us when we started. He said, you don't want in your own actions, you don't want to be the one to compel or repel. Get them looking at Jesus. You don't want them to come to you and be, because you're going to let them down, or you're going to leave, or you're going to do something. It's going to be bad. If they're there just for you and not for Jesus, they're not going to stay there. And you don't want to be the kind of congregation or church that repels people either, because you want them to stay. You want them, so, so the, the focus is on, your, uh, is on your Savior, not on yourself. Now, explanation about verse 30. And this is easy to interpret or misinterpret. It's easy to take this verse that could easily fit on a T-shirt. And I know that's true because I used to wear a T-shirt that had it on it. Um, it'll easily fit on a bumper sticker. Uh, we can misinterpret this verse and say, he must increase, but I must decrease. And we can say that what John is saying here is, oh, we got to work hard, guys. we got to work so hard to increase Jesus. we got to work so hard to decrease ourselves. Now, um, my, man, my man with the Greek text forgot his glasses today, <laughs> and he can't read his Greek text. But help me out, James, later on when you go home. This is an infinitive. This is not talking, and, and the language of the text is not saying... Uh, Let's get ourselves whipped up to make sure Jesus increases and we decrease. Uh, He is saying this. When it says, he must increase, I must decrease, it's it's essentially saying, he's going to increase, I'm going to decrease. That's going to happen. That's the way the text presents it. Um, He's telling his disciples, uh, you don't get this yet, but I'm helping you get this. Uh, I came in with a job, John the Baptist says. 
And that job was for a limited time only. And no matter what we do, if we try and go get those disciples back, if we try and, we can't. It's ordained. He is going. He must. He will. He will increase. I will decrease. I had my spot on the world stage, and I rejoice in that role I got to play because I'm so happy for the bridegroom. It's a given. God ordained it. And us, when we share the good news about Jesus, we're not trying to share the good news about our personal faith in Jesus. We're sharing the good news about Jesus. And there's a difference. We'll get a quote or two uh, in a moment from that. But think about the bridegroom. And I'll give you some bridegroom verses. This is a theme that runs throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. Over in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus talks about himself as the bridegroom. And he said to them, Matthew 9.15, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus himself, this is not brand new language from John. Uh, It might be brand new language to John, but it's not unbiblical language. Jesus later on in his ministry would say the same thing, and Matthew recorded that. This is based on Old Testament. Here's three quick Old Testament passages. Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5, where God says to his people, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but your new name will be, my delight is in her, and your land shall be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jeremiah 2.2 says this, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, and how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. God comparing himself and his people with the bridegroom and the bride. Hosea 2, verses 16 through 20. won't read all the four verses there, but at the end it ends with this. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And so this is not a, a new theme. This is a theme. And so when we talk about the church as the bride of Christ, and you think back to all those passages about who God put together, let no one divide us under, I would say the church is pretty important. It's extremely important. Because Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. Don't blow off church. Then listen to this one. This is, this is marriage 101, and we all... Uh, have times when we better even go back there and look at this. Ephesians 5, 25 through 32, the illustration of Christ and his bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul goes on to write, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And I'll add this last verse just because it's a good one for husbands and wives to think about. However, let each, each of one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. But he's talking about Christ, the bridegroom, and the joy and the love that Christ has. And John says, he's going to increase, I'm going to decrease, and I like it that way because this is a good thing. This is Jesus getting recognized, and we are seeing what Jesus is doing. It's pointing to Jesus and away from himself. Last book in the Bible, and then we're going to move to the next point. Last book in the Bible, well, actually we're not quite, but here's the last book in the Bible, Revelations 19, 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And we are clothing ourselves in fine linen with the righteous deeds that we're doing. And in heaven, it's talking about the marriage of Christ and his bride. It is so wonderful to think about. Now, I wanted to point this out as we think about the church and the church's mission and what kind of a message does a church have to give. And we see a lot of these things, and I alluded to this earlier. There's ways if we were simply an organization, we could grow. We, we could grow. I bet there's ways if we all got on board and we had a good old CEO leading us and we all got the, uh, the uh, mission that we would have, whatever that would be, tattooed into our brain. But what is the message of the church? And is it a shame if we don't grow? Well, it sure wasn't a shame for John the Baptist uh, as his quote-unquote ministry left because it was going to Jesus. And I thought about this. And I thought... What's, who's, who's spoken to this? What has spoken to me in the past? And I went to reach up on a shelf and get some copy or paper because the printer was out of my eyes, cast onto this book that I'm going to read again. But I would recommend it to you and to us for what it, it means. And that's a book by a guy named Michael Horton called Christless Christianity. And in that book, he talked about how today's evangelical church is really not the gospel-preaching church of the days of old. It's not that little Baptist church in Iowa that I sat in. He said today the, the uh, language, and he quoted a guy who did a study of youth groups and teenagers that were growing up in the church at the time, and you might have heard this phrase. He said today's Christianity is something called moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's moral... And we preach morals, be good, be good. We preach therapy, here's how you'll find healing from all of your hurts. And it's deism. God is 
God, but there's no Jesus in there, and there's no sin in there. Uh, and, and a lot of churches kind of attracted, and, and it's moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's how-to. And we'll even use the Bible for a how-to guide. And we miss the blood of Jesus that is spilled on every page. He spent time talking about Martin Luther. And Luther talking about the doctrine of glory versus the doctrine of the cross. The doctrine of glory versus the doctrine of the cross. And, and we're not saying we want you to have glory, and this is glory this and glory that, and, and you, you, you. Uh, the doctrine of the cross is different. And he gives this quotation, first of two from him, one coming in our absolute conclusion. But he wrote this paragraph uh, summing that part of, of what we've just talked about up. And, and, and it does speak to John the Baptist saying, he will increase and I will decrease. Listen to this. Nothing the church does extends, completes, or fulfills Christ's all-sufficient, once-for-all, completed work of living, dying, and rising for sinners. So enough about us, he says with an exclamation point. So enough about us. We are the sinners he saves, not the redeemers he inspires. That is the content of our witness, which is why we are heralds of the good news rather than mere purveyors of good advice. And even in terms of evangelistic impact, Horton writes, I am confident that this orientation is more effective with non-Christians. They may not like our message anyway, but at least they might be relieved that we've stopped holding ourselves up as the way, the truth, and the life. I'm not the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, not our how we live out our Christianity, how we vote, what we get involved. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. The church, when it's doing its job, points to Jesus. And we say, he's going to increase, we're going to decrease. So our final point for this sermon this morning, and this is a point for us uh, from verses 31 through 36. Receive Christ while you are still active on history's stage. In other words, while you've got a pulse, while you've got brain activity, if you have not received Christ, uh, now is the time to do it. Can't do it when you're dead. Now. Christ came from above, he says. Christ is the one, in verses 31 through 36. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, but he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. And Jesus is saying over and over again, I am the way, the truth. I'm the life. Uh, you've got to be right with God. I'm going to give myself willingly on the cross. Receive the Son. That's what he's telling us. Remember earlier, even I guess it was last week, unless the Son of Man be lifted up, for God so loved the world, he said, that he gave his only begotten Son. And it's about Jesus. And I would say, today is the day for you, while you're still breathing, receive the Lord. It's not widely believed. John said that. It's not widely believed. But that doesn't mean it isn't true. And he says uh, in this 
section of scripture. Whoever does receive Jesus' testimony is saying God is true because Jesus' words are God's words. And there's a decision to make. Last, Michael Horton, quote, he, he said in one paragraph in, this, in, the, in the chapter that dealt with this specifically, he said, and, and see if you agree with him and think, I do agree with him. He said, so there are really only two religions in the world. There's only two when you sum it up. You go, well, the world's full of religions and everybody has their religion. There's people's religion and anthropology and this religion. It's all interesting what people believe, but you boil it down like turn on the heat and boil it down and what you have left in the pan is two religions in the world. A religion of human striving to ascend to God through pious works, feelings, attitudes, and experiences. You have that. Human striving, pious works, feelings, attitudes, and experiences. And then you have the good news of God's merciful descent to us in his son. That's it. One or the other. Horton goes on to say the religions, philosophies, ideologies, and spiritualities of the world only differ on the details. In this case, you can say the devil is in the details because uh, the devil's in that philosophy. That was my addition. <laughs> if Horton wrote that, they edited it out. <laughs> so back to Horton. Whether we are talking about the Dalai Lama or Dr. Phil, Islam or Oprah, liberals or conservatives, the most intuitive conviction is that we are good people who need good advice not the helpless sinners who need the good news. And we are not good people who need good advice. We are helpless sinners who need the good news of Jesus. Two roads diverge in a narrow wood. And I promised Gordon a Yogi Berra quote. Yogi Berra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. But you can't come to a fork in the road and just take it. You have to take one or the other. And John the Baptist is saying this in that last verse. This is good to look at your text if you've got it open in front of you. Um, verse 36. He says these two things. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And that's it. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you put those two phrases, if we had like, if it was a classroom or, or something, we had a chalkboard, we could write it up or a whiteboard. Um, look how he, he juxtaposes believing in the son with those who do not obey the son. Believing does mean obeying the son. That's one verse where you can see it. You believe in the son, you're going to obey him. And when you fail, you're going to repent and you're going to say, I'm going to try and obey the son. Not obey him to be saved, but he says, you either believe in the Son, you have uh, eternal life, or you don't obey the Son, you won't see life. Then he also juxtaposes eternal life with the wrath of God remaining on those who don't obey. And so eternal life is wrath of God. Eternal life must then have something to do with the wrath of God being removed. It does. So, just to say, many of you, so many of you, have made the choice to obey Jesus by believing in him. You have repented. Uh, you've had that uh, ceremonial outer washing type of a thing that they had baptism doing. Uh, uh, yours might not be a baptism uh, for belief, but, but what I'm saying is 
you've, you've done the equivalent of what they were doing in those days when they were baptizing people. Uh, the equivalent being, you've said there's something wrong with me and I need a savior. John the Baptist is saying, along with repentance, the next step, in fact, the old theologians call them the twin sisters, uh, repentance and faith. Now put your faith in Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he's saying. Many of you have done that. Repent, believe. Others of you, I would just say again, while you're still breathing air, still walking around on history stage, and you don't know uh, when the director says that's it and the hook comes and gets you or the trap door opens and you drop down or, or whatever happens. You don't know when your lines are done. Uh, I'd say while today is still called the day, repent, believe the gospel. Unless you prefer having the wrath of God eternally remaining on you. And I don't think you want that. We'll celebrate now. We'll flip it around. We'll go to the Lord's table and we will, we will uh, think about it, what Jesus did for us. So let's pray and close this morning. Lord, thank you for your text today. Thank you for this interlude between Nicodemus and the woman at the well who we get to read about and think about next week. Thank you for Jesus proclaiming the gospel. Thank you for John proclaiming the gospel. And we thank you that there is a gospel to proclaim and we thank you for the salvation that you've given us who've repented and believed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First Corinthians, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he 